Hello and welcome to Deep North. Gisle Einarsson must rank as one of Iceland's most prolific television producers. When afforded the opportunity of stepping behind the camera and training his lens upon the world, Gisle's audience saw the world not as it was, but as Gisle was. It took a true rustic, proud of his provincial manners and heritage, to make it to the national broadcaster in Reykjavik and focus our collective attention on the people of rural Iceland. This most domestically traveled man in Iceland, such is his reputation, has now produced over 500 episodes for his TV series Lanten, The Local, and he's recently staged a show on the subject of his own travels. This makes him, in the eyes of Iceland Review, the ideal interlocutor. Man of the people. When we find Gisli Einarsson, he's stepping out of his office in the corner of the high school building in Borkanes, West Iceland. He works for the national broadcaster, which is another way of saying that he must secure his livelihood by other means. Among his current sidelines is a two-hour stand-up-come-stage show, billed as an update to the famous Ekjarten Bjarnes Travels in Iceland, a book that was funded by the Danish crown and published in the late 18th century. The title of the show is Gisle Einarsson's Travels in Iceland and not Ekjarten Bjarnes. We're in town to see it. Gisle is red-bearded and bald, a slight hunch in his back, and wearing a nice, new-looking white turtleneck sweater. He's long since reconciled himself with his ungainly appearance and embraces his reputation for being, quote, a little weird. When asked what exactly he means by this phrase, he retorts, I look weird, intoning his answer with a kind of good-natured self-deprecation that is, in his estimation, the key to good humor. If you're going to take pot shots with a funny gun, you best be prepared to spare a few rounds on yourself. Gisle comes across as personable but slightly less jovial at first than I'd expected. He's always so upbeat on television and I worry that he doesn't like me. As we stand there and shoot the shit, he regularly crosses his legs as if he's a schoolboy on the verge of self-urination. It's an awkward stance, assumed to keep his blood pressure from plummeting, for he's recently been diagnosed with PAF, pure autonomic failure. It's a one-in-a-million diagnosis, he observes, and I'm often the one-in-a-million person to get that kind of thing. He's got a point. Gisli was born with a rather potent pollen allergy, the most impractical kind of pathology to have when growing up in the countryside. He was useless during hay season. City boys, he notes, were often sent to farms in the summer to toughen them up, whereas he, runny nose and red eyes, was commonly evacuated from Borkanes into the city. The loneliest four months of his life were suffered in Reykjavik. Gisle doesn't like talking about his illness, although openness has served to preempt any suspicious looks directed towards his pretzeled posture. And also, I imagine, helps to keep people on their toes in case he faints. We ask him to pose in front of a big, picturesque window right next to his office, which is like some sort of animated painting, 
framing the winding Borkanes Bridge, the stately Hapnarfjall Mountain, and all the slow-moving rural phenomena dawdling through the snow-sprinkled landscape. When asked if it'd be possible to turn off the lights, Gisle goes jogging down the hall. Why he's jogging, I'm not sure, but I've heard stories of him passing out prior to gigs, and I worry that he'll faint again. Unfortunately, for the content of this article, he doesn't. To capture Gisle in his native environment, we suggest that he strike additional poses in front of a few Icelandic turf houses located above the school building and visible through the grand window. The houses, we learn, are adjacent to a private property, and as Gisle models on a rock in the yard, the woman residing on said property, wearing a black tank top, voyeuristically snaps pictures of our subject through her window. Quid pro quo. We ask Gisle to show us around his hometown, someplace special, and he proposes Enkunit, a hiking area just outside of town that is also popular among riders. As he drives, Gisle reveals that he was raised in one of the few horse-free farmsteads in Borkanes. My grandfather's brother was an avid rider and a heavy drinker, a dubious combination that led to his untimely death some decades back, he says. Gisle, too, has had his share of bad luck with the animals. When he was eleven, he leapt atop a wild horse during a roundup, fell off, and broke his collarbone. He's a notorious klutz. Last fall, Gisle begins, I decided to paint the eaves and windows of a roundup hut. Gisle clambered atop the hut, but the latter was perfunctorily whisked away by the wind. Deprived of cell phone service, he realized that he'd have to jump down. He landed awkwardly and broke three bones in his instep. The hut, operated by the Travel Association of Borkarfjordur, which Gisle helped to found two years ago, is only about the size of a Montenegrin basketball player. At Enkunit, Gisle leads us towards a scenic grove via a snow-strewn trail. We come across three riders, and one of them, a man by the name of Björkulur Björnsson, who boasts an impressive beard and a fair face, like an aging Viking, says hello. I wanted to thank you, he says to Gisle. I thought that your show was excellent. I don't often laugh out loud, but I managed it once or twice this time. Gisle thanks the man sincerely, obviously flattered by his success in inspiring audible mirth from the stolid old-timer, before striking up a conversation with the rest of the party. Taking note of one of the men's bare heads, Gisle offers him his Tottenham Hotspur's cap. I'd rather die, the man replies. On our drive back to town, Gisle expands upon his enthusiasm for English football. He points to a roadside sign with which he and a friend took some liberties. It reads, Tottenham Hotspur League Champions 2022-2023. It's an optimistic divination, to say the least, for Spurs, who often display streaks of brilliance, have bungled every attempt at the league championship in their less-than-glorious career. They currently sit fourth. And you received permission for this, I suppose? Nope, we just did it, Keesley replies matter-of-factly. 
Granted, the person who owns the sign wasn't all that enthused, and the Liverpool fans especially have been rather upset about it, which I've enjoyed. Back in Borkanes, Kisle escorts us into Café Kirth, a café whose interior is bloated with furniture, antique sofas, strange paintings, random knickknacks, and new-agey music flows gently from the speakers. It feels like an apt metaphor for modern life. There's way too much stuff going on, and everyone's pretending to practice mindfulness. Gisle asks the proprietors, an elderly couple who give us a warm welcome, whether they're planning on attending tonight's show. They say that they've yet to secure tickets, but that they're, quote, definitely interested. To my ears, this seems like the kind of thing you say when you're trying to be nice, but country folk, I later deduce, must be less duplicitous than their metropolitan counterparts. But that kind of deduction is mere urban bias. We ordered coffee and I inquire about Gisela's favorite places in Iceland. He fires off a list of personal preferences, only a few of which I'm familiar with, the Rhenforsar Waterfalls, Husafet, the Kaltitlarar Valley, and so on and so on. My experience with foreign travelers, Gisli remarks, is that they're often taken by things that we Icelanders don't find all that special. They've opened our eyes to the black sand beach at Renishvera. I wouldn't take tourists to the Gutlfors Waterfall or Gaysit. I'd show them the Sneifelsnes Peninsula or other less visited gems. Gisli is quite enamored with old moss-covered lava fields, like Mother Nature laying down a Saxony carpet on particularly rough flooring, and as a student of history, he often takes special note of human artifacts, cairns, old roundup pens, etc. But anyone who spent any time with Gisli will soon begin to suspect that what's compelled him to circumnavigate our humble island so many times over is the people. He lights up around him like some kind of motion-detecting security light, but as opposed to hostile wariness, Gisli exudes a welcoming and engaging beam of rapt attention. His greatest pride over the course of his career is having shown a light on Iceland's country folk. His production of Lantin has yielded over 500 episodes. That's Simpsons territory. I'm proud of having raised interest in rural Iceland, Gisli observes. I love reporting on passionate people doing interesting things and, in turn, inspiring others to pursue their passions. I also love meeting kids and foreign residents who watch our program to learn about Iceland. TV shows don't make miracles, but they can have these small effects. How would you describe Icelanders, I inquire, curious if there are any far-fetched generalizations to be made about my kind? I don't know, he responds. It's these clichés. Maybe it's a bit difficult getting to know us. And we have this slight inferiority complex, too. I sometimes say that our problem, our defining quality, is that we're rural folk trying to be cosmopolitan. We're trying to shake off this stigma of being a small nation instead of embracing it. We're competing with bigger countries on the wrong basis. I entertain a favorite theory of mine, most strongly evidenced by our fumbling overreach during the years leading to the financial crisis, namely that we're, quote, a nation of amateurs. 
There certainly isn't the same room for specialization, Geesley replies, especially in rural areas, so we've needed to become quite versatile. People do their jobs while also volunteering for the search and rescue units or the fire brigade. But our smallness is our strength. Take me, for example. I managed to climb the media ladder, despite coming from a small town and boasting only a high school diploma. The subtext being, if I can make it, anyone can, although Geesley is probably selling himself a little short. The best thing about this job, he continues, is that you're afforded different perspectives. Traveling the country as a tourist, you often have rather superficial encounters, but as a journalist, you can dig a bit deeper. What have you learned? Just how great people are, Geesley declares. I love meeting people who can speak passionately about their pursuits, which I often have very little interest in to begin with, but which end up completely fascinating me. I also love discovering things that I didn't know existed. There are still things that surprise me, even after so many trips around the country. And I imagine that you've become less prejudicial? Yes, me of all people with all my strangeness should not be judging anyone. I celebrate diversity, and that's changing in Iceland. We're becoming a more diverse society, and we're a tolerant people. I'm tolerant, too. Maybe not regarding certain football clubs, but that's neither here nor there. As previously noted, the premise for Gisler's show is Ekjastin Bjarni's Travels in Iceland, an 18th century text which was intended as a kind of scientific investigation of Iceland and its inhabitants. Although the book is ambitious and well-researched, Gisle maintains that some of the author's descriptions of Icelanders in different parts of the country are both brutally blunt and slightly dicey. Just like the book, we wanted to play on this idea that Icelanders differ from region to region, Gisle explains. By modern standards, however, Ekjast and Bjartne took quite the liberty in their characterizations, so much so that, at times, it borders on hate speech. The South Icelanders are described as, quote, dirty losers and obnoxious degenerates. It's quite hilarious, to tell you the truth, and it often smacks of academic snobbery. In his show, which is performed at the Settlement Center in Borganes, Gisle cherry-picks excerpts from the book and pretends that he's performing an update. But first and foremost... It's a conceit to open the door to cheap humor, Kisle admits. Akjastin Bjartne's work is slightly more elegant than my update, and to this day the book still stands as an important scientific document, as a useful source when it comes to Icelandic cooking and farming, for example. I'm not sure how to categorize my own show. It straddles the bounds of stand-up and theater. Do the author's observations rhyme with your own experience of Icelanders, I ask? I wouldn't say so, but there are things that seem apt. People from Thinkersvet, for example, are proud of how proud they are. The people of Skagafjörður are party animals. But a lot has changed since Ekjart and Bjartne traveled the country. People have become more intermixed. That same evening at the settlement center at about 7.30 p.m., Gisle slips into a cramped side room near the entrance 
and insinuates himself into his costume. He puts on a white, puffy shirt, the kind made famous in the fifth season of Seinfeld, a gray vest, gray trousers, and knee-high socks, which he pulls all the way up to his blue boxers directly below his paunch. He then proceeds to tie a buckle over his dress shoes. Once Giesle is dressed, his daughter applies makeup, daubing some matte substance on his head to keep his cranium from blinding the guests. Are you the miracle worker who makes him look presentable? My colleague inquires of Giesle's daughter. I wouldn't say good, but definitely better, she responds. Moved by this exchange, Giesle recalls being absolutely roasted for wearing capri pants and high socks on television. His daughter butts in. I think it was mostly the socks, she says, in that charmingly embarrassed tone that children so often adopt around their parents. We have ankle socks now, you know. Yeah, but they do nothing for me, Giesle replies, unfazed. Just before 8 p.m., a crowd of almost a hundred people are gathered in the loft of the settlement center, seated in two rows on either side of the roof. It's mostly senior citizens, but there are also a handful of people situated, probabilistically speaking, further from the grave. There's a glass box in the middle of the stage, containing the original manuscript for Eckert and Bjartnitz's Travels in Iceland, or so the audience is led to presume. When the lights go off, the refined voice of an elderly woman addresses the audience over the speaker. In 1752, the scientist Eckert Olofsson, a naturalist, and Bjartne Paulsson, a doctor, received a subsidy from the Danish crown to document the living situation of the Icelanders for the purposes of proposing improvements. The conclusion of their research was introduced in the book Eckert and Bjartne's Travels in Iceland, which was published first in Danish in 1772. It wasn't translated into Icelandic until 1943, and there's no denying that the book is one of the most distinguished publications about Iceland that has ever been written. Once the woman stops talking, the door to the loft flies open, and Gisli Einarsson walks inside to rapturous applause. The thing is, he begins, Eckert and Bjartne were only here for about five years. And not even five years, five summers. They were no different than your average high-season tourist. I, however, have conducted my investigation for 25 years straight. I've crisscrossed the country back and forth and back again. I mixed with the people, I've mixed drinks, but I haven't received a penny from the Danish crown, not a single penny. He pauses. But the biggest difference between Eckert and Bjartne and me, aside from the fact that there were two of them and only one of me, which is two times the difference, is that they published their findings in Danish. And here we are complaining about immigrants not speaking Icelandic. Come on! It's right to point out that by publishing in Danish, the old woman interjects over the loudspeaker, Eckert and Bjartne reached a much larger audience. At the time, Icelandic was only spoken by a negligible number of souls and read by even fewer. The crowd laughs, and Gisle, despite the old woman, switches to Danish. He clears his throat and launches into a passionate and guttural spiel, and then he stops short. You just can't do this to other people, he says. It's physically impossible to speak Danish for two hours straight, 
If I were to try, I'd have to have my tonsils removed during intermission. When the laughter dies down, Gisli continues his commentary on Eckert and Bjarne's work. A lot has changed since they were here. To understand who we are, we need to understand where we came from. It's been claimed that Iceland's first settlers were Vikings, but that's not true. They were just some random people. In 874, Harald Fairhair sent his subjects a letter notifying them of tax hikes and interest rate hikes, and so all the literate people fled the country. But then they were forced to return 300 years later, for someone had to write the history of the Scandinavian kings. Gislis has many humorous things over the course of the evening, and as he riffs on the Icelanders' quirks, one is tempted to generalize, halfway through the show, that one of the lessons from all of Gislis' travels is that whatever regional eccentricities that Icelanders had evolved by the middle of the 18th century have mostly been phased out in modern times. Extrapolating on that trend, one might be tempted to surmise that whatever idiosyncrasies differentiate the Icelanders from the rest of mankind today will likewise be phased out over the coming decades. Our differences belie our similarities, and history always rhymes. We are in reality refugees, Kiesle declares. We're genetic refugees, who flee so often that unpacking our bags is barely worth the effort. We're losers, narcissistic louts, but it's important to note that we're not all the same. We're a diverse group of losers. We're all kinds of wimps. Well, uh, thanks for sharing the piece today, Ragnar. Thank you. So uh, just for a foreign audience that might not be familiar with Geisley's show London, uh, you know, I mean, maybe you can just quickly sketch out, you know, what it's like. Uh, it has to do with traveling. It has to do with kind of meeting uh, rural Icelanders and kind of getting this more maybe intimate view of the country. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe you can just kind of walk me through what uh, what an average episode of London looks like. Yeah, I mean, it's a relatively short show. I want to say, you know, sometimes as brief as 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Mm. Um some of them maybe a little longer. I'm not exactly sure on the exact um, length of the shows, but they're relatively brief, and they usually feature these sort of brief sort of, you know, you're one of the journalists who's employed there, I mean, as he notes, um, or as he's noted, I mean, although he he sort of the, I mean, the, the idea for the show was, was his, and Lumpton is actually based on an older show that he produced earlier, but he works in collaboration with um, different journalists. And so each show is structured that basically you're, you're f- skipping from one place to the next in the country and usually in, in rural Iceland in these small towns. And, you know, you're, you're being introduced to a person who's doing something interesting in, in, uh, in rural Iceland. So, I mean, it could be like, you know, in, in a small old gymnasium in the West Fjords, there's a person who's decided to start teaching dance to, you know, a group of local children. Or there's a guy in East Iceland who has a, a, a wood workshop and he's carving out these interesting pieces. And 
And the journalist comes in and asks him, well, uh, well, we're here in this place and we're talking to this person. And and that's one of the things that I think Gisela really loves is, is meeting these people who are doing these interesting things and being utterly moved by their passions. And so, yeah, that's that's maybe in a nutshell what, what the show is about. So a big part of kind of Gisela's project is, you know, showing this closer look at rural life in Iceland. And, you know, I mean, as he kind of says, uh, Iceland has always kind of been a, a small society. And, you know, I mean, he kind of uh, points at maybe a um, an identity crisis within the Icelanders of maybe not recognizing that they're uh, this, that that they are still in some sense these farm people who are kind of trying to in some ways compete on a larger world stage or something. Um, and, you know, I mean, like it's definitely a kind of important historical dynamic, uh, like in the last hundred years, you know, I mean, Reykjavik has blown up country life has kind of, um, in a lot of ways been more and more pushed to the edges. Um, I guess I'm just kind of asking, what do you think like the success and popularity of Gisli's work and his show kind of says about this rural and urban dynamic in Iceland and kind of where the kind of line falls right now in Iceland, you know, like is Iceland still this kind of uh, farming community or is that increasingly something from the past? And, you know, like, like where do you think the kind of interest uh, is kind of coming from? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think, for a large part of its appeal is that, I mean, I mean, living in the city, you always have, I mean, I think most people have these roots that lie in different parts of Iceland and these rural places. And for my own parts, I mean, my grandmother, I mean, she was born in a turf house in North Iceland in Skagafjörður. And, you know, her brother took over the farmstead so when I was younger, I would, um, we had a summer cabin on the property, on the land, and we'd spend summers there, you know, visiting the barn and the farm and riding horses. And I think that's certainly a part of it, that we all have these roots that lie, you know, away from the city. Because, of course, I mean, Reykjavik developed relatively late in the history of Iceland. It didn't become this metropolitan area, if you can even say that, what it is today. So, I mean, I, I think that's one part of it. We all have, like, you know, this, these connections. And then there's also the fact that, you know, I mean, we love, most of us spend some time traveling around the country um, and camping. And, and it, you know, it's maybe interesting as just a matter of practicality of like, oh, yeah, this place is here and these people are doing this. Um, but I think, yeah, maybe maybe that's changing. I mean, maybe... I mean, we were fishermen and farmers for most of our history, and and now you know most Icelanders live in in the capital area, and I mean, farming has proven you know it, it's not a particularly remunerative profession these days. No, <laughs> and I mean, you see farms increasingly sort of going into tourism, and I mean. So, it's an interesting question, but I think he's absolutely right with his idea that, you know, we, we are these sort of rural amateurs. And I mean, as I mentioned in the piece that, you know, just during the, the financial crisis prior to that, I mean, you had 
I mean, fishermen sort of abandoning their jobs to become investment bankers. <laughs> and, and, you know, people who have experience in that field pointing out that, well, no, maybe you actually need some schooling and some experience. And, and so, yeah, I mean. So I think that's something that's especially interesting to me is that, um, you know, because urbanization occurred pretty late in Iceland, uh, my sense is that the average Icelander still has like a lot more awareness of where their family came from in recent history. I mean, like for instance, um, my family, uh, like, like when there's kind of like family gatherings, um, uh, my great grandfather, uh, had a farm up in North Iceland called Krossau. And there's, you know, like this kind of like big family almanac basically of, uh, just kind of like the clan basically. Uh, so like this book is called like Krossau Eit. Um, and you know, like still, even though like everybody in that family basically lives in the Reykjavik area, like there's still this kind of sense that like there is this connection to this farm in North Iceland, even though, you know, nobody really like lives there anymore. Like there's not really any real connection there. And yet, you know, like the kind of thing that brings this big group of people together, like all these like second and third cousins and stuff, uh, is this distant memory of a farm in North Iceland. And I feel like, you know, people still feel that somehow, like, like they're kind of like aware, like that, you know, like somewhere in the not too distant past, like it's not, uh, it's really not that long ago, uh, that, you know, that, that used to be home. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's something that, you know, as you grow older, you become more interested in. And I mean, I remember being a young man and just being constantly bombarded with like genealogical information of like, <laughs> oh, did you know that you're, you know, and, and when you're younger, you're like, oh God, I have no idea what you're talking about. And, <laughs> and please stop talking to me about all these dead people. But then definitely. My, <laughs> yeah. I, I have to admit that my mother is still telling me about cousins that I've never heard of before. <laughs> I, I think it's a pretty universal experience in Iceland. Um, yeah, but I think as you grow older and, you know, you start looking into the past and, you know, trying to get acquainted with your people and your history, um, it's important. And it's, I don't know what the the appeal exactly is but it may speak to the fact also that i mean we have the book of settlements and most of us via the eastland Dinka book website can trace our lineage back you know until to the point that iceland was settled so maybe it's something that we've been quite preoccupied with since our first days in iceland so I recently spent some time in the countryside, um, and I have to admit that, yeah, I mean, you really do notice a big difference between city culture and kind of country life. Um, I mean, in the same night, I was offered a cigarette by a woman in her 70s or 80s uh, and uh, bought a shot by some, like, 19-year-olds or something. <laughs> And, you know, it's like just that kind of thing just never really happens in Reykjavik. And, you know, like like there is this, um, you know, I mean, like when you go out into the country and like you really feel like there is this community where like everybody, everybody actually does know each other. Um, and there's this kind of just openness that you don't really get in the city. Like there's just this sense of like, oh, yeah, like, you know, I'm having a drink right next to you. Like, of course, I'm going to just say hi. You know, I mean, like, I feel like, like in the city, we often have like our guard up a bit more, you know, it's like, you never know if you're talking with like just a total 
you know, just some random guy, just some weirdo or something. But I feel like, you know, like out, like in these like smaller communities, there's, you know, I mean, yes, uh, sometimes these small communities can be a little bit harder to break into in a way, you know, I mean, like if everybody knows each other, it can be hard to be an outsider, but at the same time, I mean, like within that community, there's also, yeah, like it is in some ways like a big family sometimes. Yeah. And I mean, maybe that's one of the appeals of the show as well is that, as you say, there is this difference between these small rural places and, and the capital area of Iceland and, um, me and, me and Kolle, our photographer, we last fall, we went to, for example, a, a roundup party, an annual party after the, the annual roundup in Svarvalatalut in North Iceland. And, mm. and I had basically the same experience that you're describing. It was like, uh, you know, there was this big party, this very small community center, just basically, you know, I, I don't know how it was. It seemed like it was 20 square meters and, you had all the locals there who knew each other very well. And they seemed to be like, I mean, this may be some kind of urban prejudice, but they seemed to be a lot less preoccupied with their phones. They were, you know, seemed to be just very much in this moment. The music that they were listening to was just like old Icelandic pop songs. You know, it was like, there was no, you know, no trap music <laughs> or techno. It was just like old ballads. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's certainly something. There's something there, Eric. So something that is <clears throat> kind of interesting to me uh, is that, um, you know, uh, Icelanders did actually stay pretty connected throughout history. I mean, there was this annual thing meeting uh, where at least the most important people in the country would kind of travel. Uh, people will still, you know, obviously traveled a lot by boat. Uh, also, obviously, you know, Iceland has this history of literacy. There is kind of writing from the very beginning of Icelandic settlement. So all of these forces uh, actually really kind of standardized the language. Uh, and so even though uh, Icelandic is, you know, this really old language, there's actually very few regional dialects, which I think is kind of interesting because like you might almost expect, you know, some of these really remote parts of Iceland um, to have more of a dialect. And I mean, from what I know, there are some slight regional variations, uh, you know, I mean, like maybe people from the East Fjords uh, kind of do their eyes a little bit differently. Like I've heard like instead of like Venur, like Venur, something like that. Um, but so that's kind of interesting to me that like for the most part, Iceland doesn't actually have these regional dialects. Um, so, you know, I guess my question is, you know, like what to you are actually some of the realist regional differences, you know, I mean, like we don't really have so much the dialect thing here. Um, and yet, you know, I mean, like just from your experience, like what are some kind of, uh, you know, I mean, of course, like these things are always a little bit played up, you know, I mean, like for the most part, people are basically people and yet, you know, there is such a thing as regional identity and regional, idiosyncrasies what are what are some of the ones that you've noticed the most yeah i mean I, I think you're right and as far as for example regional dialects are concerned i mean there's really i mean the popular understanding is that you know you have akureringar you know the, the people from yeah. town of akureri who have this really quite distinct way of stressing their syllables and inflecting which is quite like different from the way people in the capital area and other places speak. 
and it's you know noticeable to the point of reproduction that you can make fun of it, which is why it's funny. And I think you're right in saying that. I mean, in my own mind, that's that's really the only really distinct example of different dialects. But as far as like picking out regional differences, you know, I, I think I haven't I haven't traveled enough and spent enough time to have really gleaned anything that you know of note aside from very general differences between urban and, and rural folk. But um, what's interesting is listening to Gisle talk because he's been over around the country so many times and he's talked to so many different people. I mean, as I say in the article, probably one of the most domestically traveled men in Iceland. And he says that, you know, he sees certain idiosyncrasies and character traits like people from Sinkerschweitz being these excessively proud people, <laughs> proud for being really proud, proud of being really proud, um, which I, I'm not, I'm not um, qualified to comment on that. But then he he said about Skagfirðingar, the people from Skagfirðir, North Iceland, which are my people, and he said, you know, they they were known in Ekkjartanbjarni's travels book as as these party animals, <laughs> and I think that I can attest, and you know, they are quite <laughs> babyless and. Um, intoxicated <laughs> and, and attending that roundup ball um, in, in that region was hilarious because, yeah, the people were really quite drunk. <laughs> so there is maybe something to uh, some of these characterizations. Yeah, I mean, I think so. And, and probably they were a lot more stark at the time of writing. And as I say in the sort of conclusion of the pieces that, you know, these things gradually phase out as we intermix and, you know, I, I'm hopeful, interested to see whether, you know, 50 years, 100 years from now, and if mankind survives, <laughs> that, um, you know, it's it's going to be the same thing about sort of nation, national differences. We're gradually going to intermix and realize that we're all just people. Well, thank you for talking today, Ragnar. Thank you for having me. Oh, and uh, one more thing. If you enjoyed listening today, uh, you can get 40% off an online annual subscription today at IcelandReview.com with the coupon code ICELANDREVIEW23. So that works out to just be three euros a month for access to all of our online articles and all of our interviews and everything. Uh, and again, that is ICELANDREVIEW23. All lowercase, ICELANDREVIEW23.